If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. <laughs> you know, it's powerful even in cartoons when we see a love that's willing to risk it all. You know, a love that's so powerful that it's really willing to give up the safety of the aquarium to, uh, to venture out into the unknown world of automobiles and crazy guys for the sake of love. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 because we've come to a point of this book where, uh, where Paul is talking about a love like that. And uh, throughout this chapter, he talks about this crazy love that allows him to really put up with a ton of stuff. Matter of fact, he says in verse 12 of chapter 9, it says it allows him to put up with everything. And then it talks about how this love compels him and possesses him and even controls him in verse 16. So this love thing may not be what you think it is. So let's try to unpack it and get to a place where we can all step into it. Because in uh, 1 through 18, Paul, let me kind of jump through this because we don't have time this morning to read and kind of walk through all of it. Let's get to where I think we can learn something here is 1 through 18, beginning in verse 1, he says, am I not free? And then he begins to talk about all the things that he's free in. He says, I'm free. I'm an apostle. And as apostle, I have authority. And as an apostle with authority, I have the freedom to exercise that authority. He also says, you know, we're free as apostles to eat and drink, to celebrate life, to eat whatever we want, to drink whatever we want. If you were here last week uh, and we talked about the whole journey of the weaker brother, uh, you heard a lot about that freedom that we have in Christ, that nothing constrains us other than our love for each other. He talks about how he's free to marry, but he's also free to stay single, that some choose to get married, some choose not to, and he says, I'm free. And he even talks about that he's free to get paid for what he's doing. I like that. Don't muzzle the ox while it grinds the grain. But there's something greater to Paul than his freedom to stay in the aquarium. In fact, in this little cartoon, not to make too much of it, uh, but I probably will, is that he was free to say, hey, I'm free to stay in the aquarium. Good luck, buddy. I'm sorry, you know. People eat calamari every day. And you're just the next victim in the train of calamari, which I love. And who has the best calamari in town? Carabas? All right, okay, okay. I love calamari. See, you know what's funny about us is let me ask you, what freedoms do you have? What freedoms do you actually have to stay in the aquarium? What freedoms do you have to stay in that warm, kind of safe, salty place called your own aquarium where you really can say to the world, I, I really am sorry, you know, that that's going on for you. But I'm free. I'm really free. Like, I can tell you with me is that uh, if we start talking about our freedoms this morning and we start talking, you know, you can sit there and this is your first chance to think about it. I've been thinking about it all week long. And let me tell you, you got freedoms. And you know the best way to discover what your freedoms are, that you revel in, what your aquarium is, is have somebody start to take some of them away. Like, have you ever gone to a restaurant because you just, you love one thing on the menu? You love it, you know? 
and you go to that restaurant, and you know before you go there you're, what you're going to order. Anybody? Okay? I mean, I love PM burgers. They're just, like, I've got to have one every couple of weeks. They're, they've got cocaine in them, I think, because they're addictive. But imagine me going there. I've got the freedom to go there. I could go there for lunch. I could go there for dinner. I've, I've got that freedom. But imagine me going there, or you going to your favorite restaurant, and walking in and going, hey, give me the burger. And the waitress or the waiter looking at you and going, guess what? Uh, we're out of those today. Would you like to see a menu? What's your thought? No, I don't want to see a menu. You just took away my freedom to eat what I want to eat. Or how about when someone interrupts your sleep? Does that bother you at all? They start their lawnmower at 5.30 in the morning. Who mows their grass at 5.30 in the morning? Your neighbor, right? Or that baby you had that you were certain was going to change your life and set you free. Oh, you're free. Yeah, you're free to be the slave of this little bitty person now. If I would have told you before you had kids, hey, there's a person that wants to enter your life, and they want you to hand feed them every meal they're going to eat. They want you to bathe them every time they need to take a bath. And oh, by the way, when they poop, you got to wipe. All right? We just said, no way. There's no way. Yes, that's called children. Freedom. Yeah, I love the freedom to get on a plane and somebody leave me alone. I have a zone on a plane. I don't know about you guys. Some of y'all are chatty, you know, when you get on a plane. Oh, somebody new. I just can't wait to sit and talk to you, you know. Not me. It's like, my, here is my, and it's funny because what is it, the one thing that people ask you when you get on a plane? What do you do? And I'm, I, I'm caught in this moral dilemma because, you know, there is, okay, one of two things happen when you get on a plane and somebody says, what are you doing? I say, I'm a pastor. One is they, you know, uh, and they don't talk to you. That's a good thing, you know? <laughs> yes, I'm a, I'm a Bible-thumping believer from the South, you know? Good Lord, can we change seats? We were on the way to Africa, all right? And my son and I were going there, and this 30 people came on the plane, and they were all wearing the same T-shirt, you know? We are missionaries from Texas. Uh, we love Jesus more than you. Something like that, you know? And you're going to hell, I think was on the back, all right? And Trent leans over to me, and he goes, hey, Dad, I'm going to tell him you're a pastor. Uh, imagine 30 people with the same T-shirt coming up. Brother. Now, anyway, I'm making fun of me. Or you tell them you're a pastor, and they, they want to share everything. You know, they want to. Uh, I love that freedom. I, I'll tell you what, I, that, what freedom I love is I love the freedom to drive the speed limit as opposed to some people going down Belmont Boulevard that believes the speed limit is 20 miles an hour. When they take away my freedom to do the speed limit, which is 10 miles over the speed limit, I, when that's taken away from me, but seriously, my freedoms can also become my prison. Like, do you have a routine? Like, when you get up in the morning, is there something that you expect? Or when you go to bed at night, is there something you expect? Or for dinner, do you see, sit in the same seat? Or this morning, are you sitting in the same place that you sit every week, every week? Some of you are because I see you, all right? Imagine someone taking your seat. So Paul is saying, I have rights. And he listed them all throughout the chapter 9 from 1 to 18. 
Then he gets to verse 19 and he says this. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win. Okay? I love this. Paul is saying we are winners. All right? As many as possible. To the Jews, I've become like a Jew. To win the Jews. To those under the law, I've become like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. What is he saying? He's saying there were those that were under the law, which was the Jewish community. And Paul says, I'm not under the the law anymore because I've been set free by Christ. But I will live like one under the law so that I can win Jews. And then he goes on to say, so as to win those that are under the law. To those not having the law, meaning the Gentiles that don't have the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law, the moral law, and the ceremonial law. He said, I became like those who didn't live under the law. Not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. Was Paul weak? In the spiritual sense, he was. He boasted in his weakness. But in uh, another sense, he was very strong. But he said, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I may save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. See, what Paul is saying is that he saw himself as someone that was a winner, that he was winning people to the gospel, a saver, someone who was saving people uh, out of the butcher block, you know, calamari uh, destination goal and saving people into the gospel. See, Paul saw as his role as this journey of being a winner and a saver was to give up his own freedom and his own rights, which he had every right not to give up, that he had every right to stay in the aquarium, but he surrendered those rights so that he could build a bridge to those that don't know Christ, knowing that they will never build a bridge to him. See, it's the gift of meeting people where they are. And what does that mean to us? Hey, Midtowners, if you're a Christ follower, if Christ has become your Lord, if you've been one to Christ and now you live under the banner of the gospel, you are free now to go diving into the culture of Nashville. You're free to jump in with both feet. Some of you, uh, a few months back, got to go to Vanderbilt and hear Greg Mortensen speak. He wrote the book, Three Cups of Tea. And Greg, his story is kind of an interesting story because He was uh, a guy who basically worked and played. His life was broken up into two categories. Work, well, actually probably three. Work, preparing to play, and play. And play to him was mountaineering. He loved ascending to high peaks like K2. So he worked in the hospital to earn all his money. Then he dumped all that money on playing. So he was coming down from K2, which is all like Everest if you've never been there or know about it. And he got lost. And he found himself in a village, a Pakistan village, and they nursed him back to health. You know the story? And as they're nursing him back to health and caring for him, the children in the village came around and were playing with him, and and they began to really like Greg. And they asked him if he would ever come to their village and build a school school for the children because the children all wanted to go to school. And he made a vow (laughs) to this bunch of kids in this obscure village Uh, below K2, I'll come back and build you a school. Now, wait a minute, Greg. 
You have the freedom to work, prepare to play, then play. Spend all your money climbing mountains. It took the face of a group of little children to ask them, will you give up that freedom and come build us a school? He didn't know what he was getting into. He went back only to realize before he could build the school, he had to build a bridge. Because he couldn't get the supplies to the village to build the, to build the school. And actually, the bridge was going to be more difficult to build than the school. And then he realized that culturally, he had to build a bridge too. Because he couldn't just go in and say, hey, I'm an American, and I'm here to build a school. All right? We're all going to school. He couldn't do that. He realized he had to sit down and get to know the leaders in that community and get their permission to actually build the school. Hence the, the title, Three Cups of Tea. This is what he said. The first time you share tea with a village leader, a Balti, you're a stranger. The second time you take tea, you're an honored guest. The third time you share a cup of tea, you become family. That's where the door opens to go build a school. He realized he had to leave the freedom to dress, talk, and act like an American. And he had to step into their culture, dress, talk, and act like them and walk in their culture for him to take the time to earn the right to build a school. So what is your culture? I mean, let's think about it. What is the culture God's called you into? If, hey, if I had gone to Pakistan and said, hey, let's go plant a church in that, in that world, you know, what are the questions that we would ask as a community? Well, what are those people like? What are their customs like? How do they talk? What language do they use? How do we communicate? You know, what are the stories that they relate to? We would ask all these cultural questions. What are taboo? What are not taboo? What's the culture that you live in? Now, let me give you a little test of some things that maybe help you because it's hard sometimes to identify the culture that we live in until we see the things that would offend our culture. I was driving back from Chattanooga the other day, and there is a sign in Chattanooga. Have you ever seen it? That it has a picture of a devil, and uh, it's a guy in a red suit with a big tail and a pitchfork. Have you seen this sign? What does it say? Yes, go to church or the devil will get you, you know? Now, let me ask you a question. If I raised money to build that billboard right here in downtown because I felt that was the biggest outreach ministry Midtown could possibly have to silly dwellers, what would, you, would you give money to that? Some of you would. We would change it, though, wouldn't we? Go to church because that's where the devil's going to get you, you know? Why? We say that because we know that the culture, a lot of this downtown, the Nashville, your culture, are cynical about church. A lot of people have been burned by church, been burned by this notion of, oh, he's the leader, he's never wrong, you know? This whole idea that the church can control and constrain and suffocate your own life. That they're cynical, but they're also, they question its motives. They question the whole idea of, I just go to church to experience a show that we're going to see you guys put on some spiritual thing, you know? And the better the show, the more stimulating the service, the more, hey, I'll come back. But it has a real feel of fake to it, doesn't it? The whole notion that this culture is that, that they love their private space. That I don't want to be sold on God. I'm spiritual, but I may not be spiritual with your Jesus. 
but my spirituality is just as valid as your spirituality. That those who come across as, as God peddlers seem, they seem fanatical or plastic or phony. They don't really live in the real world. Hitting some points, do you agree with some of that? You could fill in the blanks about your culture. How do you step into that culture? The first thing we do is we listen. And we open ourselves. There's a guy that uh, cuts my hair. And um, I go to him every time my hair needs cutting, uh, even though he, uh, he's one of the many barbers that, you know, one of those factory haircutting places that you can go in and, and you can, you know, just sign up and the next available, you know, chainsaw can take you over. So what do you want? And you tell them and they don't, uh, bull, you know. But if you request somebody, it costs you more money. Did you know that? You know, if you put a name to your desire, that's an extra 10 bucks. All right, like, I, okay. So I pay an extra 10 bucks to request this guy. All right, and is it because he gives a fabulous haircut? Well, you be the judge. <laughs> Hard to mess up perfection. No, you know, I go to this guy because literally he, I could care less. I mean, a haircut four weeks later, it's, you know, a new, new opportunity for failure or whatever it may be, you know. But I go to him because we're developing a relationship. And my guy is very spiritual. And he reads all these New Age books and stuff and spiritualism. And so, uh, so when I go, I, I go and I listen to him. Like, Yesterday when I went to a haircut, I had to wait 20 minutes for my guy and pay 10 extra bucks. So after slapping around the girl at the reception desk, you know, I went back. You know, and we go back, and he goes, say, hey, I'm so sorry that you had to wait. And I, I said, because it took me 20 minutes to come up with this, I said to him, hey, if I can't be patient when I have no place to go, how am I ever going to learn to be patient when I'm in a hurry? Because I knew that would just, like, press his button. He was like, oh, such wisdom. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And he goes, so are you familiar with the, with the idea of practicing the now? And I'm like, please tell me more, you know? <laughs> and for 20 minutes, you know, he was through cutting my hair and still standing there with his shears, you know, for 20 minutes. I think my haircut took an hour, you know, because we were talking. I entered into his world, into his culture. I gave up my freedom I believe in absolute truth. I really do. He does not. I believe in absolute I believe in my experience and my knowledge and, and what the word has to say about Jesus Christ. I do. I believe that Jesus says, I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. And I grant you that's offensive to a world that does not believe in Jesus. And I have the right in that belief and in that, in that certainty of my conviction to say all those things to that guy. I surrendered all that freedom to step into his world and say, tell me more. Why? I pray for the day that this will happen. I told you last week about how the Lord convicted me not to drink when I was in college, not because drinking was a sin for me in college, but simply the Lord led me not to do it. And there was one guy in our dorm, uh, we called him Don the Caveman, partly because he looked like a caveman, uh, this is true, 
but he had loves in his life that you would think a caveman would have, and that he loves to drink, he loves to eat, and he loves to fight, all right? This is Don. He's like a walking rock. That's what he was, you know? And I remember uh, on many, many occasions, somehow the party ended up in my room uh, because of my roommate, who had the best drugs on campus, and Don kept wanting to make me a drink. He made it his mission that night, I'm going to get Randy to drink. If I could just get him to drink, victory, caveman victory. And I just said, Don, dude, give it up. I'm not going to drink. And so he grabbed me in the only way a caveman could do. He grabbed me and he drug me out of the room, out of the party, walked me down, threw me down in a chair in his room, poured his drink out in the sink, sat in a chair next to me. And I'm not kidding you. I'm not making this up. I never exaggerate. Okay, but in this case, I'm not exaggerating. He sat me down and he goes, okay, I've had enough. I said, enough of what? He goes, I've had enough of watching you. So give it to me now. What's up with this Jesus thing? And for the next six hours, we sat in his room and he didn't drink, he didn't fight, he didn't eat anything. All we did was talk about Jesus. Now, will that day come for the guy who cuts my hair? I don't know. But I'll tell you this, I love giving up my freedom to step into his world and pray that one day he will ask me a question that he will open the door for me to step in and say, let me tell you my life. Because here's the thing. I don't just dive into culture to be like culture. And I'm not inviting you to dive into culture just to be like culture. We dive into culture because we're bringing renewal into culture. Let's go back to Jim Mortensen. Jim Mortensen, who planted that church or that uh, school in Pakistan, he had a firm belief, and this was his belief. If you educate a boy... It will change his life. But he also believed if you educate a girl, it will change a whole community. See, women, you will change the world. (laughs) The pressure's off us, guys. Uh, (laughs) With his belief, he also understood in these countries, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, girls were the most uneducated people in the community. So he wanted to plant schools that primarily educated girls. He founded the Central Asian Institute because his desire was to change culture. He didn't want to just go in and plant one school. After planting that one school, he had a passion to change the entire culture. By 2010, some of you know this, he has already started 171 schools. 65,000 students, and get this, 54,000 of them are girls. He is changing culture. That's his agenda. He wants to move in. So what is our agenda? When Paul says, I give up my freedom, I become all things to all people to win the more to Christ, he is talking about a renewal of people's lives. He's talking about us returning to the source of our creation, of understanding who we truly are, of helping people understand what St. Augustine said when he said, Thou hast made us for thyselves. O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. We seek the restoration of souls. We seek for people to taste and experience what Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Hmm. So what was it that drove Paul? What was his crazy love? First, let me say a couple things, okay? You need to know this. If you got a pen and a piece of paper, you need to write this down. 
because before we dive into culture, before we try to bring renewal to culture, we need to understand a couple of things. You can't save anybody. You can't win anybody to the Lord contrary to what you think Paul just said. We'll talk about it in just a minute. Let me tell you why. Because it's the heart of our Father, and it's His work that changes people's lives. In other words, God is the one who's the great evangelist. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, I'm going to breeze through these, so write them down. Go back and study them. It says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, get this, no one who seeks God. It blows up this whole nation, or this whole notion that we are seekers. It says here, no one seeks after God. Then in John chapter 6, 44, 45, and then in verse 65, he, he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So now we see no one seeks after God. Jesus says the only way we make movements toward Jesus is if the Father is working in me and drawing me to him. In fact, it's saying that we're not the seekers. God is the seeker. That's why it says in John chapter 4, verse 23, a time is coming and has now come, and Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Do you hear the transition from we're not the seekers? Matter of fact, left on our own, we wouldn't ever seek God. God is the seeker. God is the mover. He's the drawer. He's the great evangelist. In John chapter 5, verse 17 and 19 through 20, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work, and to this very day I too am working. And Jesus gave him this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the, fa- the Son also does. It is God who is working, and he's continually working, and he's going to continue to work to draw people unto himself. So what of this love, this radical kind of love that would cause Paul to use the language winning and saving? What's going on there? What is he really seeking? Let me read you the last verse of what we just read. I do all this, this is Paul speaking after he said, you know, I become all things to all people to win the more to Christ. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in the blessing. Oh, wait. Underline that. Paul is saying what's driving me here is a blessing. And what is the blessing? Is the blessing, uh, is, is the blessing being with people? Is it coming out of the aquarium to step into people's worlds and love them? I don't think so. I can tell you. Do you ever get tired of people? Some of you are such high eyes. You're such the life of the party that being alone is like someone sticking a knife through your heart, all right? There are some of you like that. You know, you're tiggers. You know, you're bouncing everywhere. The rest of us don't like you, all right? At times, all right? You're our best friends. You keep the life of the party going. We love you. If it wasn't for you, none of us would ever have plans for anything, all right? Let's be honest. We'd all go to the movies by ourselves or stay home and just watch TV and eat popcorn, but is it the love of people? I don't think so. Is it the love of Jesus? I mean, let's just think about this again. All right. 
Is, is it the love of Jesus that compels Paul? Well, <laughs> I have to admit, there are times that, okay, and I'm standing before you now, all right? I do this for a living. There are times I just don't get into the Jesus thing. There are times that I don't feel love for Jesus. Matter of fact, there are times when it's hard to worship. There's times where it's hard to come to church. There's times where I've sat right where you're sitting, and I would rather think of anything than what's being said up there right now. Some of you are going, what did he just say? I was thinking about this afternoon. All right? Yeah, I mean, come on, seriously. You ever find it difficult to come in here and just say, man, I love Jesus so much. I just can't wait to worship, man. Just please sing five more songs. Come on, come on. Randy, please preach just 45 more minutes. Please, Jesus. Have you ever gone on a date and you had a great time and you thought it was absolutely amazing and it's almost a month before you hear from that person again? Have you ever, <laughs> okay, let me ask it in a less threatening way. Have you ever had a friend who's been on a date and that person never called back, all right? And your friend thought this one could be the one. Yes, I think so. But they never hear from him again. What can we conclude from that? Do you ever find a whole month goes by and you haven't even talked to Jesus? You haven't even opened up his word that going to church really is a drudgery? Do you think there's a lot of difference between the two? You know, when our Christianity becomes more about guilt and more about shame and more about I shoulds, trust me, you're not being driven by love for Jesus. You're being driven by love for you. If you're here this morning because you don't want to feel guilty this afternoon when you go drinking and think, oh, here I am, I'm drinking on Sunday afternoon, I didn't even go to church this morning, I feel so bad. In other words, if I'd have gone to church this morning, then I would have the freedom to drink, you know? What I'm saying is, if you're driven in your religion to perform some kind of task so that when you die from drinking too much this afternoon, you know, that when you appear before God, you can say, God, look at all the things I did. Trust me, your life is driven by a love for you, not for a love of Jesus. Now, you know, you might see Jesus and say, hey, dude, let me in. Come on. I know the whole cross thing, you know. Come on, please, please, please. I love you, man. You know, like the guy who gives you a free Bonnaroo ticket. Love you, man. In other words, I love what you did, but I don't know you, man. No, you cannot come and stay in my tent. No, you know. So what motivated Paul? What motivates us? Because I don't always like people. I don't always like church. I don't always like Jesus. Okay, hang on, because this is where we're going. Here's what got Paul out of the aquarium, and here's what I'm going to challenge you to get out of your aquarium with. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, is the key that unlocks this lock. For Christ, love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who should live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul is saying, it's not my love of people. It's not my love of Jesus. It's Jesus' love for me that compels me to get out of my aquarium. It's the blessing. Paul's talking about the blessing of knowing the depth in which God loved him. 
You know, and I just want to, I want to nudge you out of this whole, okay, I've heard this before. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Blah, 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 blah. What did Randy talk about today? Uh, it's not about God loves us. Hallelujah. You know? I don't want us to cheapen what Paul is talking about here. Because what Paul is talking about is this is a love that goes past the surface and dives down into the deepest desires of my heart and says, I will meet you there. And let me tell you something. We know the extent of that love that God has for us to the extent that we're willing to understand and expose the desires of our heart. See, so many of us cheapen the desires of our heart. We start saying, well, what's going on with you? Man, I need a new car. If I could only get a new car, then I would just feel so much better because my old car, you know, it's just this, I just hated it. The air conditioner doesn't work. If I could just get a new car, then I'd be happy. That's a cheap desire. What's the real desire? I desire to be happy. I desire to know fulfillment. I desire to know love. I desire to know life. I desire to know all that I was made to be. And all those deep desires, since they are so heavy and so hard for me to get down to and say, there they are because they seem so difficult to fulfill, I will cheapen those desires and rise them up to where? What do you want? A car. (laughs) I just want a car. I want a vacation. If I could just get a break, you know, just three days off, that's all I want. If I could lose 10 pounds, if I could just lose 10 pounds, Man, my life would be awesome. <laughs> it's a cheapening of the desires. If I could just find enough money to go to the movies, if I just had a boyfriend, you know, if I just had more money, I love that one. How much is more? I love, I love that statement because more can never be defined. Hallelujah. Because then when I get a lot, what do I want? Just more. It's the unmeetable desires, and we cheapen the deepest desires of our lives, which God actually made us with. And why did he make us with those desires? Because he made us in his image. And they're like two puzzle pieces that come together. Because that's why in Psalm 40 and Psalm 70 and Psalm 75, at the end of all those, David says, I am poor and I am weak. And he says, Lord, will you come and be my deliverer? David wasn't poor. And he wasn't weak. He was a warrior. What he was talking about is when I get down to that place, when I say, I want to know love like I've never known it before, guess what? Nothing in his kingdom could touch that place. Nothing. In that place where he said, I want to know peace of mind. I want to rest. I want to turn this off. And I want to know joy. You tell me what's going to buy that for you permanently. Well, guess what? When you buy that new car, guess what's going to be true about that new car in 10 years? It's not going to be new anymore. You know? You're going to be selling it to some guy and trying to convince him that it's a great car, and, but you're just trying to get rid of it because you want to get a new car. What Paul is talking about is we are blessed because God is diving down with his love to the deepest desires and says, I'll meet you there. When we listen to our lesser desires, I'm, I'm going to tell you guys, it sabotages your life. There's a story of these guys that were trying to uh, climb Mount Everest. And this one is about Carlos Poner, who uh, actually summited, and then the weather went bad. When he was coming down, he lost sight of his climbing mates, 
in the middle of the whiteout, he now tries to find a way down without sliding and falling to his death. And then he experienced what climbers called the sweet death. He's at 8,500 meters in night falls. He doesn't feel too cold or worn out, just sleepy and a little clumsy. For no apparent reason, he suddenly goes blind in one eye, and he hears the voice of someone he can't see and someone he's never met. Listen to the voice. Hey, dude, you should take a rest. You deserve it. You work so hard, and you should rest. Carlos refused. He does not want to stop. The ghost companion continues to tempt him. Why not, man? You already reached the summit. Just lie down on the soft snow and close your eyes. He tells the story as if that person was really there. Carlos pushed through the night, refusing to believe that what this false person was saying was really true. But he could see him. He could hear him. He was hallucinating. See, that's what cheap desires do. They come in the form of a ghost, and they try to convince us God will never meet your deepest desires. God's love isn't strong enough to go down to that place where you really want to feel alive. So you need to cheapen that desires. What I really need is just a boyfriend or get out of this relationship or a husband or I need to get rid of my husband. That's what would make me happy. That's probably true. But wake up. See, in fact, what I'm going to challenge you with, we have to evangelize ourselves before we ever step into the culture and believe that gospel wants to bring renewal to other people's lives. That's why Philemon 6 is so powerful. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. You hear what he's saying? Dive into culture. Look for those open doors so that we can bring renewal because when we do that, guess what it does? It causes the phantom ghost lesser desires to vanish. And our deepest desires now are being exposed to the love of God. And now I understand all that I have in him. When I begin to live that out in other people's lives. Is that true? What drove Paul was the blessing of seeing God work. He's the great evangelist. We just are participants with him in what he's doing in people's lives. And when I begin to share, I begin to see. So Paul gave up his love for his freedom, for a greater love. It was the love that held him. So what would that look like here? Okay, a bunch of people in this room. What would that look like in this world, in this community, that is free, and you're free to live in the aquarium, you're free to know that God's working, you're free to come to church, but you're also free to shed the skin of your freedom and dive into a culture and see how God would use you. A community that wants to see the blessing of God in our own lives. What would that look like? Okay, two questions, and I'm through. Is your freedom more important to you than other people? Give you a chance to think about that. Is it? In other words, is your heart heavy for other people to experience the blessings of Christ and their deepest desires as you experience it? If you say, you know what, quite honestly, I don't ever think about it. Hey, that should be a red flag. 
You know, it's time to go back to understanding what compels you because it's not the love of Christ. And ask yourself, am I being compelled by lesser desires or am I being compelled by the greatest of desires? All right? So that's my first question for you. Here's my second question. If God wanted to use you in somebody's life, who comes to your heart right now as you think about where God has placed you? Who? You got a name? So what we're about to do is we're about to worship. But this worship is a chance for us to allow maybe what's been said this morning, the Holy Spirit, to use that to bring it down in my own heart. So I want you to begin with, uh, would you join me in the process of saying, Lord, would you meet me in my deepest desires? Would you press through the, the phantom ghost that want me to lie down and hear the true voice of your love for me? And, and let that come in to where we let go of our lesser desires so that he can meet us in that place and bless us. And then we're going we're gonna to pause for a minute, and I'm going to ask you, uh, would you be willing to write down the name of that person on a piece of paper? Not for me, not for anybody else, but almost as a way for you to see, yes, the Lord's called me into that person's culture. They've called me into that. <laughs> you know, I was at the Y yesterday, and I was running on the treadmill, and I was thinking about this sermon and this passage, and I was looking around me, and I was saying, Lord, there's so many different cultures around me. And there was a person on the treadmill in front of me that uh, was listening to music, and uh, they really started getting into it. You know, they're running, and you could tell, like, the music was just kind of taking over. And, uh, and next thing they know, they kind of forgot where they were, and their hands were in the air. I'm not kidding you. They were, like, just getting into it until the treadmill caught up with them and threw them off the treadmill. And then, you know, Saturday morning, it's kind of empty in there, and, you know, you're there looking around, and I kind of look away. And here's the question. Please, God, don't call me into that culture. You see what I'm saying? Is that what would it mean to step into that culture? We all have an opportunity every day. God surrounds us with culture. He surrounds us with people. that some of you are so gifted to walk into that culture, I could never walk in that culture. I couldn't. But God has prepared you to. So I'm not thinking about how do we change a culture. I'm asking, is God want to use you in one person's life? One person. That you're praying, God, would you open the door like Don did with Randy? Would you just open the door? Because I'm not going to kick this person's door in because you're the evangelist, not me. Would you open the door to where I could show this person the love that you're showing me? All right? So let me pray, and then we'll go into this time of worship and consideration. Lord, we are a crazy, messy bunch. Our emotions are all over the place. Sometimes I want those deepest desires met by you, and sometimes I just want a minivan. Sometimes I want to know you and the fullness of who you are, and sometimes I just want a burger from PM. And that burger sometimes is more important to me than anything in your kingdom. I'm a crazy kind of person, Lord, and I'm surrounded by people that are just as crazy as me. And yet, you came into our culture. Jesus, you left heaven 
You surrendered your rights in heaven as the God of the universe, the one who created all things and holds all things together. You surrendered all that, and you came down into my culture, and you spoke my language, and you built a bridge to me because of your love for me. Lord, I pray for my friends and for me. Maybe this is just the only moment in the week that you're going to return our mind to sanity to where we see how much you want to step into our deepest desires, that you're our true deliverer. You're the one that loves us with a love that does set us free and sets us free to be compelled to love other people. So, Lord, we pray come, and we lay our sins before you. We lay not just our inconsistencies, but, Lord, our gross sins where we've said things we shouldn't have said. We've done things that we are ashamed that we have done. But, Lord, at times we have turned our back on you purposely and walked away from you. Come and set us free from that guilt and that shame. Let us hear your words that you throw our sin as far as the east is from the west, that you make us white as snow. So that, Lord, we are not afraid when you draw near to touch our deepest desires and to rescue us from the phantoms we create that would want to give us the sweet death. I thank you, Jesus, you came that we may have life and have it to the full. Help us evangelize ourselves this morning and give you praise. In Christ's name.